Well, six years after Jesus had died and raised from the dead, the church was still primarily a Jewish church. Now, that might seem like it's not a big deal if it weren't for the fact that God had foretold throughout the Old Testament that his people would be a mixed people of different tribes, nations, languages, all of them worshiping Jesus. And for various reasons, uh, the church had remained the Jewish church. And, in fact, the Jews were incredibly prejudiced. So we can understand this. If you guys have friends who have maybe lived through um, a war, or friends who come from families or a people group who have lived through a genocide, you know there that tension sort of run deep in the blood against maybe their enemies. So war affected this, right? So, I don't know if you guys uh, have any Armenian friends, um, but I think like one to two million Armenians uh, were killed. It's genocide underneath basically the the Ottoman rule uh, early on in the 20th century. And so if you talk to your Armenian friends, they're always aware of what's going on, especially because some leaders in Turkey deny that it even happened. And they're the ones who've done it. And so you can tell, you know, those those animosities, they run deep because of, let's say, war, enemies. One other reason here is because of the law. So Jews at that time uh, were prejudiced because of the ways that they interpreted the Old Testament. And they twisted even the Old Testament law. So long ago, if you go all the way back to Genesis and then to Exodus... God had called out Israel to be a holy people. And he wanted them to be distinguished from the world all around them. And they were to be holy, set apart for his glory. Uh, And so their worship was different, right? They're going to worship the one God, the one true God, as opposed to, let's say, the Egyptians who worshiped many different gods. Their morals were different. Morally, they were supposed to be set apart and holy to display God's character. And so there's some examples where, um, uh, you know, Israel was supposed to treat the, their, their family better, their people better, differently than the ways that the world uh, were treating their neighbors. Um, and then it, God even had said that, look, I want you to have different food laws. And that the common things that were there, they were considered unclean. And then there were these other animals, things that they could eat. Those things were considered clean. And there the picture was to to say to the world that, look, Israel is different. Israel is set apart from everything else. Um, But imagine these, imagine if you're following these uh, God-given rules, right? You should do these things and you don't do these things. You know what our sinful hearts want to do with God-given things, God-given rules? We tend to then idolize the rules. And forget then that those rules are really there for us to live in such a way as to glorify God. So I experience this in my own life, right? Okay, I know that the Bible tells me that I am to hide God's word in my heart. I know God's word tells me that we are to pray. But then for some reason, we come to these these God-given rules, encouragements, and we say, those things are actually God. And so I feel really bad if I'm not reading my Bible and God is unhappy with me. He doesn't love me anymore if I'm not reading my Bible seven times a day. God does not love me anymore if I'm not praying three hours a day. 
Uh, and so we basically tend to idolize these rules. And then you can see how these rules then, we begin to see them in our twisted minds. They begin to add to our salvation, right? I earn favor with God if I do the things he wants me to do. What does that tell you about Jesus's work? Who accomplished everything that one needs to have reconciliation with God. So the Jews, they begin to idolize these rules. So think about them. They're doing it for their whole entire lifetime, right? They're following these food laws. They're doing it for generations. They're doing it for centuries. They're doing it for thousands of years. And eventually, after they added additional laws that weren't present in the Old Testament, they said, you know, pretend I'm a Jewish person and you are, are, are non-Jews or you are Gentiles. Um, if what you are eating is unclean, I then begin to say that you are unclean as well. And so if I go and enter into your house, I then become unclean. And so they had this almost like this fear factor thing going on with the non-Jews as they considered them unclean and then very, you know, in their very prejudicial mind, um, they considered them dogs. You know, these are second class citizens here, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Um, so this morning's sermon is all about how God himself overcomes these racial divides these ethnic divides as he lays the foundation of the church back when after jesus had risen from the dead and gone back up into heaven as the bible says and he says here that the thing that unites them all together the thing that unites us here all together ultimately is the blood of jesus christ and so today the apostle peter because you're unfamiliar with the bible the apostle peter was a disciple of jesus uh he is our main character today as we look through the book of Acts in three chapters. Acts chapter 9, 10, 11, well, the end of 9. So really it's four chapters. So last spring we began looking, uh, walking through the book of Acts. This fall we're going to finish it. And we should finish before December. Uh, but we're going to just jump back into it right here, right now. So go ahead and turn to the book of Acts. Who wrote it? The book of Acts uh, was written by a doctor named Luke. He was a physician, as it says in scripture. So you can imagine that there's this man here with all of his educational background and he's writing down historical facts of the life and ministry of Jesus. And then also he wants to present a historical account in relation to how Jesus's church got established. Um, and he wrote it probably around the early 60s AD as a eye, an eyewitness. So if you were to read through the book of Acts, you see him using words like we, like we went here and we did this. So he's an eyewitness of these things. It's incredible. Um, so if you're taking notes, the outline is this. Peter heals. Peter preaches to the Gentiles. And then Peter is in prison. So we're really, the outline just follows the text. Because uh, that's what's happened. That's what's going on here. And we want to make sure that we're fixing our eyes in Scripture. Because this is our authority by the power of the Spirit. Um, not my own words. So these are not man-made things here. Let's look at point number one. Peter heals. This is Acts 9, 32 to 43. The sick are healed. In this section, two people are healed. A man named Ananias. He's a bedridden man. And then a wo woman named Tabitha, a dead woman. Um, now, this is relatively typical. <clears throat> and uh, these healings are relatively typical for that time. The reason why is because they are really charged with continuing on Jesus's ministry. So Jesus, as God, comes to earth to establish his kingdom. 
And so he's driving the forces of evil, if you will, back even through healing. So where sin and death entered into the world, here you have Jesus restoring things, bringing things back to life. As we're going to see, he even heals, uh, raises a dead girl to life. Uh, And so he commissions his his disciples to go and do the same. Uh, But here, it's really important to know that these miracles were done not so that we might say, oh my goodness, you know, these miracles actually do exist. But they're supposed to point them back, the people who are healed and the people watching, point them back to Jesus. Because it is in his name that they are doing these things, as they are continuing the ministry in, in some ways of Jesus. And this is utterly unique in God's plan of history. And we got to know that as we look through the book of Acts. So Jesus came to earth once, right? In the flesh. He died once. He gave out his spirit in Pent- at Pentecost once. And he's laying the beginning of the church, the foundation of the church. And that only happens once. So this is absolutely unique here. Um, what's important to note is that these healings are absolutely Christ-centric. They're Christ-centered healings. So if you look at uh, when Peter heals Ananias, you have Christ-centered words. Look at verse 34 of chapter 9. Now this is what I want you to notice. It's what he's saying here. And Peter said to him, Peter heals you. I heal you. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. He says, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make up your bed. Interesting there that the attention is not to be fixed on Peter himself, right? But it is to be the one in whose name people can be healed. And then, and then the second healing story, it just affirms this. This is Tabitha. She dies. You know, and the story goes uh, that uh, you know, a lot of people are mourning her death. She had made cloths and dresses for people. And so people are bringing them out. You know, they're remembering her. This is what she made me. This is what she made me. Peter comes along. Um, and listen to what he says. Look in verse 40. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, that might not seem like that's anything special. But if you're familiar with the Gospels, especially Mark chapter 5, you know that, that Jesus healed in the very same way. A man named Jairus, his daughter had passed away. And Jesus puts everybody outside. And then he says, Talitha, which means little girl in Aramaic. He says, Talitha, arise. So here what Peter's doing is he's saying, look, I'm healing. I'm continuing on Jesus' ministry. People are healed in Jesus' name. And even in the way I heal, you should be looking back towards Jesus Christ. So the attention is not to go to Peter. And even as I preach, the attention is not to go to me, but the attention there is to go to God himself. So it's so easy to read through this text and say, oh my goodness, like, wow, these miracles exist? We are supposed to think that, but the Bible actually never seems to really ask that question. The Bible just says, wow, they do in fact exist, and God has the power to do them. That's what we're supposed to be amazed about. The power to do these things resides in God. And for that, we then should worship him. This is what Exodus 15, 11 says, where God's people are led out of Egypt and God does these mighty works, these miracles. It says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is no one because there are no other gods. 
Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders, that is, miracles and signs. There is no other God like that. And the power to do them resides in God. These are Christ, these are Christ-centered healings. But then you also have Christ-centered responses in these healings. So look at 35. This is after Ananias is healed. And the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, that is the healed man, and they turned to the Lord. After Tabitha's, you'll look at, look at uh, verse 42. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So they're not believing in Peter, they're believing in the Lord. And all this takes place on the coastal side of Jerusalem. So if you were to push uh, west of Jerusalem, you eventually get to the coast. These are coastal cities here. You've got Lydda, and then you've got also uh, Joppa in the general area. Um, so they're Christocentric words, and they're Christocentric in their responses. But a couple of things to note in addition, in, in terms of these lands. You know, they're not, it, Peter's not doing these things in a Jewish land. He's doing these things in the Gentile land. And, and if you look there in 43, where does Peter stay after he heals this girl named Tabitha? Also translated could be Dorcas. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Okay, tanner is not a guy who just lavishes himself with tanning solution and lies in a bed. A tanner is a guy who skins animals and dyes them and prepares leather goods. So these animals are unclean. And here's Peter staying with this Gentile man, this tanner. It's like God is preparing him to do much more things for the Gentiles, uh, even though he's already ministering in this Gentile land. So Luke continues, and he highlights the ministry of Peter. Look at point number two now. First point was Peter heals, now Peter preaches to the Gentiles. And in this section, we have a wonderful account of how a Gentile, a non-Jew, gets saved. And so if you read through the book of Acts, you have the conversion of Saul, who is also, God gives him a name called Paul. Uh, and then you have this conversion of a, a man named Cornelius. So Paul is a Jew a persecutor of Christians who kills Christians, he then is saved for God's glory. Then here you have this Gentile man uh, in the very next chapter. He then also is saved by the power of God. And this basically is um, the entirety of chapter 10. I'll read the setting. Look at 10 verses 1 and 2. At Caesarea, and this is about 30 miles north of Joppa, at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, or what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. Okay, this guy is a, is a Gentile. He's a centurion, meaning that he works for the government in the military, over, and he's over a hundred men. And he's known as a God-fearer. So this God-fearer, he's aware of the Jewish worship. He's aware of the one God of the Old Testament, and he seems to genuinely want to seek them. And he's walking in ways that other Jews would walk. Right? They're, they're pious. They're, they're exercising spirituality. So he gives alms to the poor. It's like giving donations to the poor. He's helping people out because that's what God desires. And he's praying to God. But let's be clear. He is not saved. He is not saved. 
as chapter 11 indicates very clearly. Um, so it's not saying that, you know, just because one fears or just because one does these things uh, that they are yet saved. And this is going to be clear once again later on. So Cornelius, as we're moving on along in the story, Cornelius gets a vision. And this vision happens to him where this angel of the Lord appears to him and says in verse 10, verse 5, go ahead and look there. The angel uh, brings word to him. And now, he says, send men to Joppa, 30 miles south, and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. Also known as Simon Peter. This is the apostle Peter. He is lodging with one Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the seaside. And you've got to wonder, okay, why are there so many details of Simon the Tanner, house by the seaside? Here this angel is telling him to go to Gentile people. Um... Okay, so that's the story about Cornelius. He gets this vision, and then at the same time almost, you have Peter getting this vision. Because all Cornelius knows is, I'm supposed to go get Peter and bring him here. So Cornelius sends men out to get this guy named Peter and to bring him 30 miles north. Verse 9, look there. The next day, as they were on their journey, so it's, let's say, 9 or 10 journey with, 9 or 10 hour journey without stops. This is 30 miles And approaching the city, Peter now went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, which is noon. And he became hungry here. So he's going up, he's praying, and he's hungry, his stomach is rumbling, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Okay, it doesn't say what this trance was like, but you've got to imagine, you know, it's like they're cooking up the food and his stomach is grumbling, and all of a sudden he just can't eat the food that's right in front of him. Uh, Too bad for him. But what happens in this trance, it's it's fascinating, right? Look there in verse uh, 11. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Okay, thus far, we think like what in the world is going on? He's hungry. Uh, Some people say that. Liberals say that, uh, you know, miracles don't exist and this was just sort of some sort of fiction. So really he's falling into this, like this diabetic coma as his friends are making this food. And it's like, you know, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. <laughs> oh no, all this food is coming down. Um, but that's, the point isn't necessarily the vision. The point is the meaning behind it. So look at 15. Uh, or sorry, 13. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So there's all sorts of different animals, reptiles, birds, and things like that. Keep in mind, you know, Jewish food law here. God tells him, rise, eat them all. And what does Peter say? It's like he responds there as if, you know, no way, God. You know, I don't really do these things. But Peter said there in verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened a number of times. And then the sheet went back up and the vision is over. Um, You know, it's not entirely clear what his heart attitudes were towards Gentiles. We just don't know. But we presumably, if he's following Jesus Christ, he's repenting of things where he is sinning. Uh, But nevertheless, it says here that he hasn't yet 
eaten anything common or unclean. So he's a doer of the law. Uh, and he doesn't exactly know how God is going to use him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. God tells him, okay, just go ahead with Cornelius and go right away. Do not make any distinction. Do not hesitate, but just go with them. And so Peter then is brought to Cornelius. Look there. Uh, the, the men, they don't want to go back because it's a nine or, nine or ten hour journey. They don't want to go back north. So Peter houses them for the day and then they go immediately. Look there in verse 23. They stay at his house as guests. The next day he rose and went with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives, his close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Uh Uh-oh. So here the issue is, is this Peter-centric worship? Is this really about Peter or... Is this about Jesus Christ? And look how he responds. Verse 26. Peter lifted him up saying, stand up. I too am a man. In other words, you're looking at the wrong person. You should be looking at Jesus Christ, who is God and man. Uh, On a side note, it's amazing how, you know, these visions, they, they exist. They take place. Um. I don't. I personally don't find them going on much here in America, but I think every Iranian believer I know uh, has come to Christ through a vision. But you know what the vision says, or these people, the, these people that speak in these visions or these dreams, um, they say, "I am God and I am Jesus. This is what I have done on the cross. I have paid for your sins, and now you can be forgiven." They do, they're not like that. They're like this, where God reveals to Cornelius, not everything, but he says, I'm going to send you a man who will then go and tell you what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Isn't that amazing? That's how visions are supposed to work. Um, And so you see this sort of pattern preserved here. Cornelius gets this vision. Peter then comes. And then as we're going to see, he preaches the gospel. Uh, this really underscores here the importance for us to be sharing the gospel with people. That is God's ordained means to bring people to know him. So it doesn't just happen where God reveals himself and then they as individuals then are saved, at least in my experience and according to scripture, is God reveals himself to them. They then go and find somebody who will then further explain what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So Peter then preaches the gospel to him. And they're, they're just ready to, they're ready and eager to listen. There, if you look in verse 30, 33, Peter doesn't really know why he's there. So he says, uh, why is it that you've sent for, sent for me? Cornelius says, so I sent for you at once and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So they're they're ready, they're eager to hear. And so what does Peter say? Look in 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He's in the home of a Gentile, right? God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Okay, now right there, if you just stop right there, 
you might agree or you might think, hey, you know, this is like a, univer- a universal uh, position. Anyone who seeks God, whatever God they're following, can be saved as long as they are fearing God and as long as they are doing what is right based on whatever religion they believe or whatever beliefs they hold to. That is not what he's saying. Because fearing God has to do with listening to his word and obeying his word, right? So you cannot uh, uh, fear God and reject his word at the same time, right? We're, We're tracking so far? And so what fearing God means is explained in the rest of this passage. So look at 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, that is God himself, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. So to fear God means you fear the Lord of all, that is Jesus Christ. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on the tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So again, this is Christ-centric, right? Did you guys notice who's the main character in this sermon? It's Christ. It's not himself, but it's Christ Jesus. He is the one who lived. He is the one who died. And he is the one whom God raised from the dead. And he is the one whom God has appointed to be the judge. And do you see uh, what's very much on his name, or on his mind there at the very end of that sermon? You see that in verse 43? To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name so you see what the primary problem is for people according to peter the primary problem is not that we are sick or that we get sick it's not that uh, we are poor and that we need more health so it's not a health and wealth gospel as some preachers preach the problem here is this How do sinful people stand before a holy God? How do unrighteous people stand before a righteous God if we are loaded down by our sin and our guilt? Because it says that God's eyes are too pure to look on evil and sin. And if we know sort of the story from Genesis to Revelation, we know that that's the problem that God solves So the problem takes place in the third chapter of Genesis, right? So third chapter of Genesis, and then God in his grace spends the rest of scripture leading us all up to the point where he sends Jesus Christ, the God-man, to die on the cross for our sins. So where Adam and Eve sinned, they created the problem. God then provides the solution. And the Bible says that we all are sinful people. 
Right? So then we should ask ourselves, you know, have we lied before? Yes. Well, how many lies have we told? I think we would all say we've told countless lies. We say, well, okay, have we ever stolen anything? You know, I've stolen something. So you know, I've stolen something more than once, so that makes me a thief. So I'm a liar and I'm a thief. And then we say, okay, well, the, another commandment is, you know, do not commit adultery. And Jesus says that if you commit adultery in your heart, or if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, or a man in your heart, then you've committed adultery. So right there I am a liar, a thief, and an adulterer. And for these things, God says there is judgment. God says that there is, in fact, a real hell. The good news then, okay, that's the bad news. The good news then is that God himself provides a solution and offers us a way out. That we somehow can stand before the judge and the judge dismisses our case. Well, how does he do that? It's because Christ himself bears the wrath and takes our sin upon himself so that we would be free. And that's why he says, it's on his mind here, Peter, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. It doesn't matter if you are of the upper class or the lower class. It doesn't matter if you are Asian American or Hispanic American. But everyone, everyone, whether they are a murderer, as we saw last week from the uh, last time from the conversion of Saul, to an adulterer like David, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus receives forgiveness of their sin. Um, and this is beautiful here because they're br- Peter here is bringing in all these different kinds of people underneath the banner of Jesus Christ. All of the subjects in Christ's kingdom recognize him to be the Lord and the Savior who died on the cross for sins. And then as he got up from the dead on the third day, he showed the world and God um, that his payment was final. It was accepted. And this gospel here is to go towards the world. So listen, Isaiah 49, this is 700 years before Jesus. This is God talking about Jesus, okay? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. And then he says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And there they're not talking specifically about geography here. They're talking about peoples. It's not just for the Jews. And God had told this all throughout the Old Testament, which is why Peter says in Acts 42, uh, or sorry, 43, to him, all the prophets bear witness. To Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone and anyone who repents of their sins can be forgiven of their sin. And that's really the structure of the book of Acts, right? You have the gospel going to Jerusalem and Judea. And then the gospel goes to Samaria. The Samaritans are half Jew, half Gentile. And then the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. That is the Gentiles. So that verse that says that Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, that's Acts 1.8. And so here in Acts chapter 10, this is God fulfilling his promises. Isn't he a good God? That anyone, no matter how sinful, no matter their background, can be forgiven of their sins. Now, this here is to, this should push back against some of the Jews, right? Peter himself says, uh, 
you know, that it's unlawful for me to enter into the home of a Gentile. That's not based in the Old Testament. That's their, that's their common culture, uh, their cultural context. And the Jews from Jerusalem, they get word of what's going on. And this takes place in 11. Look there, 11, chapter, uh, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. That means that they were saved. How is it that they get saved? You can look it back up at 44. This is what happens while Peter was still saying these things. The Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, that is foreign languages. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain from some days. So they get word that the Gentiles are saved, that the Holy Spirit has gone to them. They then, after they've consciously repented and believed in their minds, they then are baptized. And uh, the J Jerusalem church, I mean, they're kind of critical. Look there in verse, 11, verse 2 of chapter 11. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Uh, Peter then here, before, as he is before the circumcision party or these Jewish Christians, he then recalls what happened. He says, I got this vision with the sheet and the animals. Cornelius also got the vision. An angel came to him. Look there in verse 14. This is what the angel says of chapter 11. He will declare to you a message. That is, Peter will declare to you a message by which you will be saved. So Cornelius wasn't saved and then he gets saved. You and all your household. And then Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. So there they're talking about Acts chapter 2, and you can read that later on if you, uh, if you like. Look at verse 17. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Um, so here you see the Gentiles are converted. Peter experiences some degree of pushback. You know, surely, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean or common. God says everything is clean. Make no distinction. Even amongst the peoples, Peter then goes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are, he, he, are, are uh, saved. The church in Jerusalem hears about it. And they also, you know, they're sort of pushing back. They hear the story that God had wrought, brought about these things. And then they acknowledge and they say, yes, they glorify God. So here's the Gentiles are coming to faith. And then this, the second story there affirms this in 19, chapter 11. This is the church in Antioch, uh, a Gentile church. They then are converted. Uh, people go around preaching the gospel to them. Eventually, a man named Barnabas and then Paul, they go there to minister to the church. 
Uh, and then look there in verse 26 at the very end. I love it when it says this. It says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Right? Jews and Gentiles. I love how Luke makes the point of telling us um, how all these Jews and Gentiles, those who fear God, how are they identified? Right? They're not identified as Israelites. They're not identified as Jews, and they're not as identified as Gentiles. But what? What identifies them is not primarily their bloodline, not their country of origin, but the name of their Lord. Right? It's at that place that they were first called Christians. Now, this has tons of application for our church. One of them is the fact that uh, we should all be striving to be ministering to people who are not like us. Right? That's what this trajectory tells us. If God's people are brought together through the blood of Christ, Gentile and Jew, together in one man, then surely we got to look around at our own lives and look at our friends and say, okay, are they all like me? Because if so, something's probably wrong. So you can imagine the church that might be called, let's say, a Chinese evangelical church. And if we were all to go to this church and say and look look at all them and and recognize that they all speak english but yet their name is called the chinese church or the spanish church or the greek church and they're all based in the same common language as the the world around them something should feel a bit off now now i'm not saying that people who speak chinese that they should not have a Chinese-speaking church. It's one thing to say, okay, people don't understand the language of English, so therefore let's go ahead and, and establish a Chinese-speaking church or a Spanish-speaking church. I'm saying if the church is based on the same common language, and yet everybody looks the same, and comes from the same culture, and they only want to evangelize to one particular segment of the world, something in that trajectory is off. This here... Given the fact that God is bringing Jew and Gentile together in one new man, all underneath Jesus Christ, bonded together, not by culture, but by Christ's blood, that sends us off towards multi-ethnicity, multiculturalism. So I love the fact, if you just look around here, there are people from all sorts of different backgrounds. Um, and it's, in the, it's when we're doing life together as Christians that we sort of begin to bump heads against one another. Because my culture, I might do things a different way than, let's say, my friend over here. But even in those things, we begin to work through what it means to be united in the blood of Christ, despite our cultural distinctives. So it's us saying we are not going to make our distinctives highlighted, like our cultural background highlighted. But we want to make sure that our worship together is Christ-centric, not based on our culture, finally. Uh, this drives us towards a multi-ethnic church. Um, as we move on, the church en enjoys great unity. Look there in 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29 so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. 
And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So here the church is coming together. They're bonded together in the blood of Jesus. And then they're helping one another in the general area. Isn't that awesome? So they're growing in number. They're growing in prosperity. Many people are turned to Jesus. And I'll just read some of these here in Acts 9.35, right? And they turn to the Lord. Acts 11 says, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Acts 11.21 says, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This is all Christ-centric, right? They're praising God. They're extolling God. And then they experience unity here. They're helping one another. But unfortunately, you know, Satan would love nothing more than to tear apart and destroy the mission of the church by getting at the unity of the church. And this leads us to point number three. Um, Look there. I'll read chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. At that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of the unleavened bread, which comes after, uh, comes after the Passover. So you see what's going on here. You have the church who, who are growing together in unity. You have the apostles who are helping with their hands, but whose hands are trying to tear down the church. You have Herod right here. And this is the grandson of, of Herod the Great. Um, Peter is arrested, but then God breaks him out. So look at verse seven and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him in the light and the light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And look there, it's awesome. You you can't conclude, you can't help but conclude that this is divine power and the chains fell off his hands. And then they, they make their way to a woman named Mary. They'll make her way, their way to her house. Um, you know, in this all, it would be unfortunate to merely conclude that, hey, you know, this is a great story about how different cultures can come together underneath the same roof. If that's all you're taking away, that would be um, wrong because it's all about how we can have unity through the blood of Jesus. And all glory in that ought to go to Jesus Christ. All glory ought to go to God. This is for God's glory. Jesus, people are being healed in Jesus' name. People are glorifying God. And the point is even made in this last section here in the death of Herod. Look there in verse 20. Uh, the story goes, Herod was angry with a couple, with a couple cities. The people seek to make peace. And then look at 21. He goes there, basically on this, on this, Herod goes there to establish his reign, to make peace with the people. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robe. You get, you get that, you get that feeling there. He's trying to get ready for this great display of kingship. He took a seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting. Okay, you've got to keep in mind here, you know, this is Christ-centric worship of the Christians. This is not Peter-centric worship. This is not man-centered worship. And look at what, what the people say. The voice of God and not of man. So they're praising Herod for his great, wonderful speech saying, the voice of God. 
And what does God do there in verse 23? Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Not because he killed James. It's not because he was persecuting the church. What does God say? Because he did not give God the glory. Isn't that amazing? This whole section, while it is about Peter and we're following him, this section is very much about God. So we see, right, that Peter heals. Really, it's God that heals. Peter says, Jesus heals you. Peter does, in fact, preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but it is God who saves, right? I mean, who gives Cornelius the vision? The angel of God. When Peter is in his trance, who speaks to Peter? It's the Lord. Who is making a way for Gentiles and Jew to be united in Christ? It is Jesus. It is God. Through whom is forgiveness of sins to be had? It is Christ. And then Peter is in fact imprisoned by Herod. But who is it that reigns? It is God. Who breaks Peter out of jail? It is the angel of the Lord. By whose name are God's people known by? It is Christ's. This here is all about how God works out his promises and fulfills what he promises and he does what he says he's going to do. People are turning to the Lord. They're glorifying him in the midst of all of it. In God's plan, God has determined that people would come to faith through the speaking of the gospel to others. Um, but keep in mind, and keep in mind that we are to fulfill these things. He's given us a command to preach the gospel. And so we are to go ahead and do these things. How we should be encouraged in light of, let's say, this Herod story, is that nothing will stop Christ from building his church. So you can think about the events in recent history over the last few weeks, how Kenyan Christians have been slaughtered. Pakistani Christians have been slaughtered. Ought we to feel some degree of discouragement thinking Christ's mission is going to fail? No. Because the Christians there, even though James was put to death by the hands of Herod, they continue to go on knowing that Jesus Christ will build his church. Ought we to take revenge for these things? In Romans it says no. We aren't supposed to take revenge for these things because it says that God is the avenger. So we leave the things that he has said and claimed, we leave those things for himself. But then we go ahead in the power of the Spirit, carry out the things that he's called us to do. Namely, to preach the gospel to others. So we learned about the ministry of Peter. We learned even more about how God is building his multi-ethnic church and bringing us all together for the sake of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to be a believer, uh, this story calls you to think about certain things. If God is really doing everything out there and moving everything to his glory and for his people's good, the question then is, what exactly are you living for? If God is really all sovereign and all powerful, we have to ask the question, well, whose air am I breathing? The days that I live, whose days are they? Who has given me these days and all the things around me so that I might give, use these things to the praise of his glorious grace? And then this scripture also calls us to ask if Jesus Christ is the Lord of all and the judge. The question is, will we stand before him forgiven? 
or finally unrighteous. If that is you, and if you know yourself to be not righteous, the Bible says, just as Peter does, everyone who calls out to him can be saved. Repent and believe. That is, turn from your sins and believe on Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do thank you that you are an inclusive God. In that, no matter what background we come from, no matter how sinful we are, we can in fact stand before you holy if we repent and believe. So we thank you for the power of the blood of Jesus who bore our sins on the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, Lord, we praise you for your powerful blood, and we even acknowledge that you are so powerful to forgive, to bring people of different backgrounds together, all for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.